Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Premier Doug Ford slowly announced Premier Doug Ford announces plans to slowly reopen Ontario. Global News Sam Cooper has a great column on how China has been stockpiling personal protective equipment. And guns, guns, guns. No more. Canada has new rules. That's a little exaggeratory, but what the heck. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, many have been talking about uh, the, the trip down this curve and what it's going to be like reopening our economy. Uh, Premier Doug Ford earlier today announced that as of May 4th, he will open up a certain limited amount of businesses, uh, mostly outdoor-related, in, uh, in order to start this project and slowly get things moving forward. As of Monday, May the 4th, the following businesses will be able to operate. Lawn care and landscaping services garden centers and nurseries with curbside pickup, community gardens, no-touch car washes, auto dealers by appointment only, site preparations for construction projects, and certain essential construction projects such as broadband, telecommunications, municipal projects, and schools. Marinas and golf courses will also be allowed to start getting ready for the season, but not open just yet. Folks, our hard work and perseverance, our patience is paying off. Let's bring in Dwayne Bratt, PhD, Professor of Political Science, Chair, Department of Economics, Policy uh, Studies, uh, Justice Mount Royal University, and is with us now. Dwayne, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Uh, thanks so much for the time. Your thoughts as provinces start to reopen up what is this going to look like i mean we've all talked about how much this is costing us and and we certainly know what it's like uh, as we've come up this curve what's what's going down the back side of this going to look like so it's it's tough to tell right now because each province strategies are slightly different but there are some commonalities one is it's a phased reopening so it's not like we go from shutting things down to everything's open uh, it's going to occur over a number of different stages. The second is that provinces are using uh, various metrics to determine whether to move from, let's say, stage one to stage two, uh, or to to go back. Uh, those metrics might be number of cases, number of hospitalizations, how many go into intensive care, how many deaths. Um, and the provinces are also localizing things. So there may be one policy for an entire province, but let's say you have an outbreak in a particular town or a particular city, there may be differences there. So it's, it's, a, it's a thoughtful strategy. Uh, it's a middle ground, and we'll have to see how it, it operates because it hasn't started to roll out yet. We've just seen some of the plans. And obviously, where you are in Alberta, they've announced uh, the same sort of thing. But obviously, also, as you've mentioned, a different set of circumstances out there than here. Are you surprised at the difference between the rollout between Ontario, say, and Quebec, which are pretty much the same size province, and Quebec having uh, the number of cases that it does greater than Ontario? Are you surprised they're taking a bit more aggressive approach to I, this? I am. Um, you would have thought that Quebec... Uh, which has the highest rate of, of deaths and the highest rate of cases um, in the entire country, uh, and that includes per capita, is also the one reopening uh, the, the quickest or having the most aggressive reopening strategy. Now, Premier Legault uh, justifies this by saying that the problem has really been in seniors' residences, and there they're taking in um, you know extra precautions at that area, uh, and we'll have to see. I will say we've just gotten news out of Georgia, and Georgia went very aggressively, uh, and they had an immediate spike uh, in, in COVID-19 cases. So keep an eye on Georgia as well as what's going on in Quebec. Now, that's with businesses opening up, and, and many have said, as soon as we got the modeling showing some light, it's everybody started getting antsy and saying, well, when are we going to open up? What are the dates? What are the dates? Uh, despite that we are starting to 
uh, open up things and, and things are slowly starting uh, to move forward. We really do have two cases here in Ontario where there's what's in, in, in Quebec, I guess, with what's happening in the homes and with, with what's happening in the general population. Can they be separated? Can you look at that those two sets of data and, and make different uh, suggestions for one than the other? I think you can. I, I think it is tough. And I think that is one of the reasons that they put restrictions on on visiting uh, people in homes uh, is to try to contain it in in that area. Um, so we'll have to see if that if that strategy uh, is effective, if that strategy uh, works. There is a certain distaste to doing that because it's almost like you're saying if you're old and you're in a home, you know there are different. Um, safety requirements mm. and the general population. And that, that may be tougher for, for people to wrap their heads around. Dwayne, will people want to go out once that, the doors that, are open? Like, I mean, you know, everybody's just assuming that everybody's going to go back to business. But again, all you have to do is walk to your local grocery store and realize how eerie it is there. Most people want to get the heck out as fast as they can. Yeah. And, and this is what we're going to have to see is uh, even with this gradual reopening of some businesses, are we going to see consumer demand? Um, are we, and, and that could be because of health fears, but it could also be economic circumstances, right? Even um, if uh, you've been receiving some sort of government aid over this time period, you've still been without a job for a month, six weeks, two months. And so can you afford to go to a restaurant, even if they're running 50% uh, capacity? And not just consumers. What about workers? You know, we're already seeing battles over uh, meatpacking facilities, um, both in Canada and the United States, where they're saying, no, we're going to reopen it like they are here in uh, High River, Alberta, as well as the United States. Are workers going to say, no, we don't think it's safe there? And then what do you do? How much do an awful lot of unknowns here? Dwayne, how much do you think this is going to permanently change the way we work, what, the way we live, the way we do things? I mean, we've certainly seen and we've heard many people say technology is far outpaces society. And now with COVID-19, uh, we've certainly seen society catch right up to technology with us working from home and, and remotely and so on and so forth. How, how do you see this changing the world post-COVID-19? Well, you look at the last really big sort of shock to behavior, and that was uh, 9-11. And if you look at what has changed, just imagine what it was like to fly prior to 9-11 to where it is now and the amount of security screenings uh, that that occur. I can imagine that there is going to be higher demand for um, remote working. Uh, for those that they can't, because they've been doing it for the last month or so. And and I'm going to wonder, you know, in my sector and in post-secondary, how much of this is going to to impact things. It's one thing to do it emergency style, but we're looking at doing remote delivery in the spring with a bit more lead time. We're looking at it, doing it in the fall. Are we going to see a fundamental shift uh, in how we deliver post-secondary education? Are we going to see more telecommuting uh, amongst workers simply because they've been forced to do it and they've realized in some cases they can't do it? In some cases, it's been a disaster. But in other cases, they've been able to muddle through. So with a bit more time and planning, maybe that does change behavior. And is this a solution for some? I mean, I think here, Dwayne, in in southern Ontario, where a trip into Toronto can take you an hour or two if the traffic is bad. I I mean, will there be a lot of workers that just say, you know what, I don't need to do this anymore? Are there there CEOs out there that are thinking, you know what, we need less bricks and mortar and, and and our employees will be happier if they're at home in the right environment? We've already seen that gradually occurring. But this could lead to a, a much larger spike uh, in that sort of telecommuting, that maybe you go into the office once a week instead of five times a week. Uh, and then the rest, you're, you're working at home. Um, so, you know, these are, these are trends that were existing prior to COVID-19, but they could easily be accelerated because of COVID-19 and the response that we've taken. 
Dwayne Brad has been with us, PhD professor, chair, Department of Economics and Policy Studies, Mount Royal University in Alberta. Dwayne, uh, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend and be well. You too, Scott. All right. Uh, yesterday, Ontario saw uh, a slight increase in cases uh, of only 2.4%, uh, the lowest in recent weeks. We've seen a, a slow, gradual flattening of this curve. The odd spike here and there uh but for the most part uh it looks consistent uh, looks consistent with the flattening of a curve let's bring in dr todd coleman phd assistant professor department of health sciences wilford uh, wilford laurier university and is uh, with us now todd thanks for the time hope you're doing well yes i am Todd, your thoughts on where we are on in this pandemic? Uh, we're certainly uh, hearing the news and saw the latest models that uh, we are flattening the curve. We're on the backside of this, uh, I guess. And, and, of course, now people are getting antsy to, to get out and about. Uh, what are your thoughts on where we are in this battle? Yeah, so it, it does uh, appear that we have sort of a, a flattening of the curve going on. Uh, but we're still, that means we're, we're in the middle of it, not at the tail end of it. So what does that mean as far as what we are doing in process as, as you know, many are hoping that we're going to get let out soon? Yeah. So to me, uh, this means that we're at the point where we're seeing an even number of consistent cases per day, which means that there's still transmission happening. Uh, which means that we need to stay the course uh, a while longer before we make any decisions about relaxing any social distancing uh, measures. What would you like to see, Doctor, with the, the, the flattening of this and the downside of this curve? What, what sort of criteria, what sort of indication uh, before you see that it, it's time to perhaps relaxing guidelines? What do we need to see from this data? What we need to see is not just one or two days of lower curve, uh, lower numbers, the number of new cases per day. It's a consistent downward trend uh, over the course of a week, two weeks, uh, before we make any decisions about what to do and when to uh, social distancing measures uplifting. Uh, we have seen uh, a slight spike. Uh, the premier was talking earlier in the week that we had seen a couple of consist- uh, consistent days of decline, and then all of a sudden, an odd uh, spike, which you know obviously is is of concern. How, how do we read these? What does this tell us? Yeah, that's the thing with just being presented with a number of new cases. What we're seeing could be. Uh, we need to look deeper into the numbers to see what's happening. So we may be seeing a spike because we are seeing a number of outbreaks in long-term care homes, for example. Uh, so we, we should be looking to see whether or not and what kinds of transmission are happening. So are they, are they the, one, the cases represented in long-term care homes or are they uh, uh, representing just general community transmission? Um, is it, or, or should we, or do they separate the numbers that are, or the data that is happening inside long-term care homes and nursing homes and such from uh, the general population? Are those two totally different samples? Uh, not necessarily. However, uh, because we know that in long-term care homes, uh, people tend to get hit quickly uh, and are dying quickly. The, the case confirmation uh, of it being COVID-19 uh, comes at the same time or potentially after someone's already died of the condition. So can we, uh, should we be basing what we do in the rest of the community with what is happening in long-term care homes or should they be dealt with separately and the long-term care homes, uh, you know, a completely uh, different scenario since obviously they are, have been so hard hit? Yeah, we shouldn't be treating them entirely separately because we do know that there are uh, uh, the, the long-term care homes aren't a separate population compared to the rest of the general population. There are individuals, PSWs, other healthcare workers who are in and out of those two circles, which means the, the potential for transmission between the two is still really high. 
Uh, in Ontario, uh, the Premier announced last week different stages that we would go through, stage one, two, and three, each one two to four weeks. He w- didn't give a date, obviously, and when those would start. Earlier on this week, uh, a couple of days ago, announced guidelines that businesses need to have in place uh, when the time is right uh, to reopen. How do you explain the difference? And, and then if you if you uh, go across the border to Quebec, uh, they're talking about opening schools, um, you know, especially considering the size of both these provinces population and considering uh, the amount of uh, deaths and such that have been in Quebec. How come two different policies on uh, it's two so different policies? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, those are those are tricky things to to look at. They they could be uh, as a result of different economic pressures, uh, pressures from citizen groups, pressures from uh, economic groups to reopen. Uh, I'm not too sure the logic, to be perfectly honest, behind Quebec's push to reopen. Uh, anything that allows people to come into contact with more frequency than what we're seeing now is uh, a really good recipe for allowing transmission to happen over and over and over again and be sustained for a really long time. So do you think it's too early to be making that call in Ontario that, uh, you know, slow and steady as she goes is is the way to go here? And, you know, again, obviously uh, all the leaders are being lobbied to open this thing up uh, and and it's quite the balancing act. But is, is your suggestion to err on the side of caution here? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I would say that we need to be extremely cautious about this. Uh, any any potential for uh, people coming into contact with each other, one case alone can lead to two or three others, which will lead to two to three others, which will lead to two to three others. And then we're just left with the same mess that we we're in right now. As we are, uh, I guess, finishing off week seven of this, uh, it was certainly that's when March break started, I guess, for the kids. And it was halfway through that that things started to go awry. What are your thoughts, doctor, on where we are now and, and how we've been handling this as a country? Uh, Canadians, uh, uh, Canadians overall, we seem to have been handling this pretty well uh, in terms of the 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 social distancing uh while we do see and have heard a lot of stories about people uh feeling very isolated i think a, a lot of us are are more uh tolerant than uh other nations in terms of staying home so the protests while we have seen some of them are nowhere near the size of the protests happening in the united states uh, to reopen uh and i think the 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 overall public health strategy has been really effective uh, however, I do recommend uh, at all times uh, uh, that we should really be ramping up testing. We have no real sense of understanding who has and who hasn't had it, uh, disease, uh, and getting a, a real good foothold and understanding of that is what we need going forward because we have no idea who uh, has antibodies, who is potentially immune. Those aren't uh, uh, necessarily one and the same. Uh, and we, we just need more information to help guide our planning. Doctor, any thoughts for uh, those that are listening and, you know, finishing off week number seven here as we're heading into a reasonably nice weekend, a pretty nice weekend. Uh, thoughts on the mental health aspect of all of this? Yeah, I think it's the, the mental health component is really uh, important to consider uh, we need to just ensure that we are uh, maintaining contact with other people and being aware of the mental health supports that are available in the communities as uh, that are particularly vulnerable, I think it is a really important thing. So looking those up online, making sure that uh, if you do need help, that you do ask for it. Dr. Todd Coleman has been with us, Ph.D. Assistant Professor, Department of Health Sciences, Wilfrid Laurier University. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thanks. You too. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid. He is with us, a faculty member in human sciences, social sciences, as well health policy advisor at Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Ahmad, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Great to speak to you, Scott. Thank you. 
Uh, we're certainly hearing rumblings that things uh, the premier is ready to move to uh, the next stage of this uh, reopening. What are your thoughts as to where we are today as far as COVID-19 cases? I think we're moving forward. We're trying to put forward what the new world would look like post-COVID-19. And by that, I mean that Ontario released guidance on Thursday for specific sectors of who most likely will be opening up first. So like office workers, retail and food services, construction, transportation, agriculture, film and TV. And the guidelines look like they're trying to maintain physical distancing of two meters. So most of the measures and guidelines are really still trying to get at the physical distancing that we've been saying for the past few months. Uh, too early. Many were saying that uh, we were talking yesterday about how fast que- uh, Quebec was moving as compared to Ontario. The premier getting pressure, uh, be you know, to reopen up, and obviously Quebec moving ahead of us. And considering their cases, many were surprised at that. Is it too early for this? I think it's not too early to start having contingency plans in place. The the question is, is it too early for us to assume that we're on the safe side? And the answer is no. It's way too. Yes, sorry. It is way too early for us to assume that we're safe from COVID-19. I think we're still not at the point where we can say that we've arrived at our destination. I think we're just working towards that. And the guidelines are just trying to get businesses and, and the workplaces ready for the day when we can say that we're opening up. So I don't think it's too early to start the contingency plan. I think it is too early to think that we are safe. Are you concerned or how concerned are you, doctor, that once these measures are relaxed a bit, that we will get that second wave? Mind you, we have talked about that before and had mentioned that I guess that's inevitable. It's how big is that wave going to be? Absolutely. And I am concerned that we're sending out the message to the public that we are good to go, which we're not. I think that uh, what I don't want to happen is that we send the wrong signal that we can relax our physical distancing measures. I think COVID-19 is still a real threat and we need to be careful with that and that we can't assume that the guidelines released to businesses and the workplaces apply to us. I think the message to us is we continue physical distancing and we exercise caution when it comes to COVID-19 until further notice. We're not there yet. You bring up an interesting point, too, here, Ahmad, in that um, just because certain things are opening up, it doesn't mean that that works for the public as well. In other words, a lot of this is trying to keep the economy going. Uh, what Can you expand on that just a little bit? Um, um, because, the, you know, leaders will say, all right, now we can do this, now we can do that. Um, will And, you know, Canadians have been pretty good at this, at, 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 at listening to what's been being said and such. Uh, do you think we will do this gradually do you think that uh that we'll understand uh coming out of this is just as sensitive as the way up the curve absolutely i think the biggest uh, confusion out there is, is that the minute we start saying that businesses can open people are assuming that it's uh, back to normal life as it was pre-covid 19 that is not the case no no country in the world has done that so the expectation that canada will all of a sudden go back to a pre-covid 19 life where things are back to normal is, is not based on evidence. So the evidence tells us that it has to be gradual. It has to be slow so that we can test our health systems as we go along to make sure that we are able to adapt as fast as we can in case of another wave of COVID-19 cases. So, you know, one of the concerns, Scott, is that people are, yes, they were seeing more and more people on the streets. And, and so there is a concern that the message is that you can go back to normal life. Uh, no, the message here is that we're providing guidelines for universities, businesses to have contingency plans in place in case we need to move forward with physical distancing without impacting the economy. But the message here is not that we can go back to a social gathering for more than five people, engaging with the public on a wide scale. That's not the message here. Uh, if we were to start reopening, when will we know how this is going? Will it be that crucial 14-day period, two weeks after? We'll know how we've done there? Yes, absolutely. So the 14 period will be still in place. So as soon as we start opening things and people are, are more outdoors and, and engaging with other uh, individuals, and within 14 days and more testing that will happen because we have the capacity now to test more, we will be seeing the numbers much faster than we did initially. So I don't suspect it will take as long as it did initially with COVID-19. I think now our systems are much further ahead that we can adapt faster and we have more real-time data that can help guide our interventions. How protected should one be when going out and about? If you, you know, if it, mind you, we're going to the grocery store now. So I guess yeah. in a sense, that's just like anything. Um, but at the end of the day, once things do start to relax a bit, 
if that's what's happening today. Um, what advice do you have for us moving forward with this? All of the rules that businesses are putting in place. I think that there are many, many businesses. We've been hearing reports about stores across the country now already installing barriers between cashiers and customers. They're introducing floor markings for physical distancing. They're sanitizing carts and baskets. They're providing hand sanitizer for customers. The point there is please follow the rules so that those things are put into place now. Businesses have invested money and resources into putting them. And now the, the, and the focus is going to be on us, the consumers, to follow those rules uh, in those places. Uh, we're getting the one minute for the premier here. Uh, is the handshake and the hug gone forever, Ahmad? Uh, no, I would hope not, because I do miss a handshake and a hug. So I think we are going to come back to that point. But let's just wait till the vaccine is in place, herd immunity has developed, and we're much further down the line from this pandemic. Uh, Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, faculty member, human and social sciences, and health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. And uh, be well. Good luck. Have fun this weekend. As much thank as you, you can. Thanks. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A united front groups in Canada help Beijing stockpile uh, coronavirus safety supplies. This is by investigative reporter uh, Sam Cooper, who we've talked about many times uh, on the West Coast in regard to uh, uh, situations involving China and such. And he is with us now. Sam, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yes, thank you. I hope you're doing well, Sam. This is another fascinating report that you've got here. Uh, give people just a, a quick update of what this is, a capsule version of what you're talking about here. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, we looked at the issue of uh, everyone uh, in Canada right now knows uh, if they wanted a safety mask, it would be very expensive and po- po- possibly uh, impossible to find. And that's because, uh, of course, the pandemic is the reason but we found that these masks disappeared to China. Two billion from January to the end of February were imported into China. And I looked deeper into the reasons. Why were all the masks disappearing worldwide and going to China? Of course, there's an extremely dangerous uh, virus that broke out there. But in the middle of January, China wasn't really coming uh, forth with the information to the rest of the world. And yet they became so fearful of the danger of the virus that they employed a number of channels to import these masks. And uh, I looked into and found a clandestine network that's operating worldwide in a nutshell. It's called the United Front Work Department. It's directed uh, from the the very top of Beijing's leadership. And it seeks to uh, gain strategic resources and information from countries around the world by uh, attempting to exert a extreme influence on Chinese immigrant populations worldwide. So to finish up here, middle of January to late January, a call is put out to these United Front networks worldwide. By any means, buy all the masks you can and ship them back to China. And uh, I found that groups in Canada were a very big part of that. So uh, what you're basically saying here is prior to China telling the world how bad this was, there was a plan on to buy as many of these masks through Chinese organizations out of Canada and shipping them uh, to China. Who are these organizations? Uh, Tell us more about these organizations that are helping the Communist Party of China from Canadian soil. Right. It's a little known outside China, but there's a powerful agency called the United Front Work Department. This is an organ of the Chinese Communist Party, and uh, it's become more known to Western intelligence in the past 10 years what they do. And essentially what they do is they have operatives in all consulates worldwide. These operatives, uh, really, there's no other way to say it, meddle with uh, foreign student groups in Canada and other countries. They set up or infiltrate uh, Chinese-Canadian business associations, trade groups. They uh, attempt to influence academia, even media, we're told. And really, it's an influence organization. They are there to execute uh, Beijing's foreign policy all around the world, and also facilitate espionage and secure strategic resources, whether that means, uh, in the worst cases, helping to uh, steal technology from the West, 
in this case, it seems there was a, a, an operation where China needed masks so badly that they employed these rather underground methods. Do Canadians care that we have become so interwoven, so dependent on China, whether it's our economy, whether it's our healthcare system, or now with survival and getting personal protective uh, equipment? It seems whenever concerns like this are raised, uh, the term racism comes to mind. How do you separate this, Sam? Well, it's an extremely interesting question, and I've, I've gotten into these areas because uh, coming from Vancouver, I started to look for the reasons why real estate was becoming so expensive, and they were largely related to, I found, uh, mysterious money that was coming into Vancouver. So that got into some sensitive areas. Uh, I found that underground financial means were used, and as I tracked that story, something interesting was popping up. Uh, there were were apparent underground criminal networks that seemed to be very comfortable uh, talking to Chinese officials in BC. So this started to suggest some, some alarm bells. And really, I tell people, I'm finding and experts are finding, whether they be uh, in, in academics, journalism, or intelligence, that uh, China, the, the Communist Party is really meddling in the Western world in ways that involve uh, espionage, mixing with organized crime, and mixing with foreign influence. That has nothing to do with race. That has something to do with a, a very powerful political operation that's been running for over 50 years, trying to increase their power in Western democracies. Uh, Donald Trump now says that uh, the Chinese are trying to uh, somehow uh, sabotage his election. With comments coming from Donald Trump like this, does it reduce the credibility of your argument? No, I would say that uh, it's, it muddies the waters. Uh, when Donald Trump came out and said the World Health Organization uh, botched their response, I think automatically, if, uh, you know, part of my job is taking the political temperature, a lot of people, because they uh, see him as such a controversial figure, thought yeah. he's just trying to shift blame and cast the blame in another area. However, uh, Erwin Kotler, the liberal justice minister, came out and said the exact same thing, basically, that uh, China, in many ways, concealed evidence and covered up this uh, pandemic to the extent where perhaps 95% of the cases could have been avoided if they had been forthright with the world. So uh, really, I'm just uh, here as a, a nonpartisan examiner of evidence, and it doesn't matter where, uh, you know, what someone on the right, the left, the middle says. Uh, I'm just looking for the facts. Uh, how concerned should Canada be about the Communist Party of China? Because it seems like we're always kowtowing to them. We're, we're trying to get in there. We're trying, you know, it's a golden goose. How concerned should we be? Are Canadians concerned enough about this, Sam? Well, as someone that has looked at the issues for about five years now, uh, emerging from China, I would say that for a long time, uh, it was just, it was pretty widely viewed that, China, you have to do business with them. You'd be stupid not to do business with them. They're, you know, fast becoming perhaps one of the, they could be the top economy in the world if they keep on this track. But with the, uh, the controversy surrounding the two Michaels that are now sitting in prison, I think that woke up a lot of Canadians uh, to the realities that this is not a country of the rule of, uh, rule of law. They, they don't deal with others uh, on the terms that you might wish. They, they deal from, from their strength. So I believe that if you look at Australia and New Zealand, those societies um, ha have started to realize in terms of foreign influence, they have some serious national security problems. They're taking some actions. I think Canada is uh, starting to wake up uh, to to the dangers and you know that that is why i stay in this lane and, and keep digging and keep doing that sam great reporting sam cooper has been with us investigative reporter for global news uh, you can check this out on our website united front groups in canada help beijing stockpile uh, coronavirus safety supplies sam great reporting thanks so much fascinating stuff be well thank you 
All right, uh, Nova Scotia, my goodness, uh, you, you have to feel for uh, uh, that province and what it has gone through over the last week, starting with that horrific shooting and then a, uh, a military helicopter going down. The first person recovered was uh, from Nova Scotia, and we're still trying to find details as to uh, what is going on and even why this was, was all going on at this point. To try to explain all of this to you, let's bring in Matthew Fisher, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute and contributor with Global News and is with us now on the website. You can find his commentary, Why Canada's Navy and Helicopters Are Deployed to the Mediterranean. Matthew is with us now. Matthew, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm uh, doing as well as can be expected in my splendid self-isolation. I hope to thank you and your listeners. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's funny. It's it's interesting listening to everyone's reaction uh, when we when we start talking to them, and it's all pretty much the same. Everybody's doing the same thing. It would appear. Uh, obviously, Matthew, uh, terrible news with the downing of of this military helicopter. First, let's start. Why, as is the headline of your article, why are we there? Why is this going on? Well, uh, Russia invaded uh, Crimea and annexed it. Uh, a couple of years ago now, and in, uh, in fact, it's a fair while ago now, uh, six years ago. And since then, uh, there have been a number of uh, incidents or raising, rising tensions between NATO and the West and Russia. And uh, for part of that is the Russian Navy put to sea much more with its submarines and warships again as it reestablished a base in Syria where it's been fighting a war and also uh, re-established or expanded bases in the Crimea and the Black Sea. Uh, The Canadian Navy undertook to maintain a persistent presence. By that I mean always there will be one Canadian warship up against the Russian ships as part of NATO flotillas. So we have been doing that for a while. And most of the action lately has been in the eastern Mediterranean, which leads to the Black Sea and also is off the coast of Syria, uh, heightened the submarine activity in particular. And the Canadian helicopters, uh, the new cyclone helicopters that they have, have maybe the best technology in the world right now for finding submarines. So a very useful part of the mission. So that's why Canada always has a warship from Halifax based so far away from home they go out for six months at a time another ship replaces them they come home uh you talked about the cyclone this new helicopter it replaced the aging sea kings where we certainly remember what happened with that how how perplexed is everybody the fact that this was a relatively new helicopter well it, it is a bit odd that we had the sea kings for over half a century and although we have had accidents with them we haven't been the last few years that we operated them we finally got rid of the last of the uh, last year this new helicopter it, it, the military variant is only flown uh, by the royal canadian air force but the civilian variant it's a bit different but uh, is flown by uh, companies that service oil rigs oil platforms at sea right. And in fact, uh, one of those was lost in an accident off Hi- the Hibernia field uh, uh, near Newfoundland a couple of years ago. So it's not the first time one of these aircraft has gone down, but the first time the military variant has. We have no idea what happened. All we know is a no mayday call went out. The pilots clearly had very little time before that uh, aircraft hit the water. And the reason probably was that they were flying at very low altitude, which is what they sometimes do. It may have only been at a height of 200 feet above the water. And if you lose engines or have some other kind of catastrophic failure, you'll be in the drink, unfortunately, in uh, two or three seconds. Uh, Why this sort of exercise during a pandemic? Because the enemy doesn't sleep. Russia has, in Hmm. fact, in the last couple of months, same with China, increased their military activity. One could say greatly increased their military activity, spotting weaknesses in the West. The Canadian Navy has taken a lot of precautions. We've not had the same problems that U.S. warships have had with the coronavirus. Crews are quarantined before they go on the ships 
for several weeks to make sure they don't bring a infection onto the ships. And as far as we know, the ship that's out there, the HMCS Fredericton, that the Cyclone helicopter was flying from, is coronavirus free. How uh, how will this change the operation of this helicopter moving forward? Uh, as you said, militarily it's been fine. There has been some issues. What will this investigation entail? How long will these be down? Well, they have the black box. They've got the voice data recorders. Now, if they're not damaged, they will be processed and uh, looked at uh, in great detail in Ottawa at the National Research Council and they will get some information about what happened. But for the nonce, for the moment, uh, there's an operational pause. All of the 19 Canadian Cyclone helicopters, we're taking 28. We only have 19 of them so far. All of them are on an operational pause. They are not flying until they at least get a preliminary indication from those boxes of what happened. Unfortunately, there's no one else to talk to. There was no radio traffic. The pilots had no time to even send their position out. The flares that went up were automatic. They're launched when the aircraft hit the water, and the voice data recorders and whatnot are automatically ejected from the cockpit. That is why they have them. Wow. Um, Will, uh, with this helicopter uh, on pause, how does that change what the military is doing? Is How much of a dent does that put in their operations? Well, the helicopters are the eyes and ears of the frigates that we have, our warships. So they can go out 100 or 200 miles from the ship. And when you put them together with two or three other NATO warships, you can cover one heck of a lot of ocean. So when we're operating in these flotillas, as we are right now, we're out there with Turkish and Italian ships, and often with American ships, but the cast of nations involved changes. When we're out with them, there will still be quite a bit of cover, but they will lose something because the Canadians are thought at this exact moment to have the best technology. Uh, but uh, this, uh, our Fredericton, our, our uh, Halifax-class frigates, we have 12 of them, seven on the West Coast, five on the West Coast, seven on the East Coast. They also have an uh, anti-submarine warfare capability. You know, the movies, you've seen them with the pinging of uh, things mm. when you're looking for submarines. All of that stuff still exists, and that is being refurbished and modernized in those ships. So we still have a capability, but it is a bit degraded, not only for what we're doing uh, in the Mediterranean or the Atlantic Ocean, but also for our warships that go out uh, to the Pacific. And we have one that will once again soon be off the China coast. And the Chinese Navy is much more active than it was. So we still will be doing things. And perhaps this operational pause will only be a few weeks. Sometimes they last a couple of months. Matthew Fisher has been with us, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute and contributor to Global News, and you can read the article on our website. Matthew, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Earlier on today, uh, during his daily press conference where he normally talks about uh, COVID-19, the Prime Minister took the opportunity to announce uh, a ban on assault-style weapons, about 1,500 uh, uh, different styles, I guess, models uh, involved in this, uh, not allowed to uh, buy, sell, own, or import any of these. Uh, there'll be a two-year uh, amnesty, I guess, while they try to figure out what happens after this. Uh, here's what the PM had to say about this earlier today. We are banning 1,500 models and variants of these firearms by way of regulations. These weapons were designed for one purpose and one purpose only, to kill the largest number of people in the shortest amount of time. There is no use and no place for such weapons in Canada. Uh, He acknowledged that guns and hunting are an important part of Canadian families, uh, but there's an exception here. But you don't need an AR-15 to bring down a deer. So, effective immediately, it is no longer permitted to buy, sell, transport, import, or use military-grade assault weapons in this country. 
and then went in on to talk about how this uh, this legislation had been in the works uh, either way, but obviously tragic events that we've seen over decades uh, is where this is coming from. An entire generation of Canadians will remember exactly where they were on Sunday, April 18th, 2020. They will remember how their sense of safety was shaken, how their outlook on the world was forever changed. They will remember the day that they lost some of their innocence. This chapter in our history cannot be rewritten, but what happens next is up to us. We can stick to thoughts and prayers alone, or we can unite as a country and put an end to this. We can decide together that enough is enough. To talk more about all of this, Tony Bernardo is with us, Executive Director, Canadian Shooting Sports Association, and is with us now. Tony, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. So your thoughts on this, Tony. How uh, How is the Canadian uh, Shooting Sports Association uh, dealing with this? Well, I, I think grave disappointment is probably an understatement. Uh, and, and, you know, quite frankly, the Prime Minister is lying through his teeth. Okay, we don't have these firearms so they can be used to kill the largest number of people possible in the shortest period of time. Because if we do, we have another major problem in that every single police car in Canada has one of these firearms in it. The C-8 patrol carbine is an AR-15. How come policemen have them if that's the purpose of them? I mean, this is complete nonsense. We've been using these things safely for such a long time, it's unbelievable. The AR-15 has been imported into Canada since 1964. The number of crimes committed with it, one. The number of people killed, zero. Uh, obviously here, uh, Tony, you know, we're going through individual models, individual everything, and the public doesn't know yep. anything about that, nor do they right. care anything about that, right. Tony, to be and, frankly. Well, exactly. And, and let's, and hang on. So they don't care, right? Well, you know. You know that, see, I'm all right, Jack syndrome. You know, it's okay for the government to take someone else's property unjustly for no reason, despite the fact that he consistently ensures us that all his policies will be evidence-based. Well, bull. Let me let me ask you this, Tony. The first thing you said uh, when I asked you about this was that the police carry them in their in their cruisers or, or something correct. similar to them. Is that no, any identical? Re- identical. That, okay, <laughs> let's say okay, let's say identical, Tony. You know more about this yeah. than I certainly do. I do, indeed. but but what it but what does that have to do with anything to do with this argument? The fact that well, law enforcement carries the weaponry. I mean, people would say, well, the military carries the weaponry too. That's the well, whole what? idea. That's different from, uh, from, wait a sec, Tony, don't Tony, don't talk over each other because nobody can hear what we're saying. So the point of the matter that I'm making here, Tony, is police are supposed to have them. They're law enforcement. The military is supposed to have them. That's what their role is. So again, how does, how is that an argument? Okay. It's quite simple. The military doesn't carry them. Okay. The military C8 and C7s are already prohibited in Canada. Okay. They've been prohibited in Canada since the early 1970s. So, that's, that's completely off the table. These are different firearms than military firearms. The fact that the police have them is, is this simple. We don't give them to police so they can kill the largest number of people in the shortest number of, of minutes. Uh, yeah, but l- l- and, honestly, and Tony, if evidence. that's your... Tony, if let that's your finish. argument, the I, idea I, is... I let the you idea... finish. Okay, you go ahead. Finish, okay? Prime Minister says that's the reason these things exist. Well, that's absolute nonsense. They've been used in sporting competitions in Canada since they came out. There is, a matter of fact, the oldest sporting organization in North America is the Dominion of Canada Rifle Association, and they exclusively use these types of firearms. Um, you know, again, I go back to what you said about the police and the police are there to protect us. So if they're shooting at someone, yes, they shoot to kill. So again, are, are these the best arguments, Tony, with all due respect that you can come up with for, for doing this? Cause again, it, it seems, there seems like a pretty weak argument. Well, you keep harping on that argument. That was only one of many things I said. 
what I said to you was these. Okay, let me ask you this, Tony. Tony, let's cut. Let's cut. Tony, Tony, I'm going to interrupt you here. Let's cut right to the chase here. Why should we have these? Why should they be allowed in your mind? Because they are used in Canada every day safely by hundreds of thousands of law-abiding Canadians who are licensed, registered, vetted every day through the RCMP. We can't even move our residents without notifying the feds. Child molesters can, but we can't. We've jumped through every damn hoop the government has given us for the last 30 years. Age one promising that gun crime will be eliminated despite the fact that there's no evidence that the things they do will have any effect on crime at all. We jump through the hoops and we still get it right in the teeth. Why? Let me ask what, pose a question the Prime Minister did. And I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm critical of the Prime Minister when, you know, when, when I feel it's, there's a need for it. But, mm-hmm. you know, we, we talk about people who have guns, you know, and, and hunt and, and, and what have you. Um, yep. and, and even sport shoot. I've got friends that do that. Yep. But, I mean, again, what is the sense for a military-style rifle that, again, is designed to kill? Is, is that what target shooters want to use? No, these aren't military rifles. They're not designed to kill. Okay? My main deer rifle was just banned this morning. I, under, I understand using, this, Tony. I've Tony, been using Tony, that Tony. Deer rifle for twenty years. So the reason we shouldn't ban these is because there's other weapons that are just as powerful. No, that is not like again. You're not so. giving me any reasons here not to ban these. Like again, people who hunt, people who shoot. Why would you use these? And again, it, it, whether they're military, military style, they're, they're meant to look like a machine gun. I mean, any of the you know uh, the guns that have been used in in okay. these mass shootings that people are talking about. I mean, uh-huh. what's the sense in having those? So, so your like, who's, use, who's any, using those for fun? Your argument is just because they're guns. They should be banned. No, the prime minister says they're military. The prime minister says they kill people. Well, empirically, they don't. In Canada, they don't. I can't speak for the United States, but I can sure speak for our tens of thousands of members across Canada. And they don't kill anybody. They're what about the guns used in... What about the guns used in the mass shooting in Montreal and... and the, I mean, again, you know, it, it, it. What you seem to be doing, Tony, here is when everyone points to a certain gun, you go, "Well, it's not that gun; it's this gun," and and that just seems like you're no, splitting hairs here. No, I don't. You, you know, you will always have anomalies. Always have anomalies. Okay, remember the worst murder in Canadian history was committed with gasoline. Okay, everything. Again, Tony, you know, people who want people who want to have this discussion, Tony, I mean, honestly, I mean, you can't go, well, look what that guy's doing as a means to justify what you're doing. But, but you are. You're doing the exact same thing. I'm trying to give you the fact that hundreds of thousands of lawful Canadians compete and, and shoot at sporting activities and hunt with these firearms every day and never cause a problem. Yet they're the ones that are being attacked. That makes no sense. Makes no sense. That's not Tony Bernardo policy. Tony Bernardo has been with us, Executive Director of Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Tony, as always, thanks for the discussion. Always, uh, always energetic. Thanks so much. Good luck moving forward. Thanks. Bye bye. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I, I just, you know, I, I just don't see it. I disagree. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.